Hi there, guys. Oh, I'm not allowed to say that anymore. Hi there, people of Dish. Welcome to another Dishcast after last week's, really, I thought, rather riveting discussion of various ways of dying. This week, we're going to move on to Alyssa Rosenberg and talk about what we don't actually haven't talked about enough, I think, on the Dishcast, which is popular culture and and the general culture, some thought about parenting, the children, these kind of topics outside the usual, well, one hopes outside the usual culture war paradigm, but of course, nothing is outside the culture war paradigm anymore, and we will have no, to tackle it is that. not. Alyssa Rosenberg, whom I've known forever, well, not forever, but quite a long time, time. writes about mass culture, parenting, and gender for the Washington Post opinion section. Previously, she was the culture editor at Think Progress, the TV columnist at Women and Hollywood, a columnist for the XX Factor at Slate, and a correspondent for The Atlantic. So almost as many magazines as I've been at yeah, over the years. I think that's right. We'd have to do a you know a side-by-side tally, but we're at least close to tied. Yes. I don't know whether that's a sign of, of <laughs> a good sign or a bad sign that we go through so many, but but yeah, and you you were you were also, as I recall, you know, quite early in the online journalism business. Yeah, no, I I was sort of adjacent to all the baby bloggers back when that was a way that you could still come up in journalism. And it, I, you know, I I don't think of myself as that old. I'm 38, but it makes me feel like such a fogey, right? <laughs> it's like. I had a blog on Blogspot. Like I had a live journal. Do you kids even know what live journal is anymore? Can you imagine how I feel? I mean, it's it's it's. But you're like you're the OG though. You've kept it going through all the cycles, right? It's like now that Substacks come back around to blogging. Like the world has moved around you. You're like you're the axis. Oh, which, I am. You know? well, that's a lovely thought. I <laughs> I feel like an axis that occasionally wobbles. But thank you very much. I I there's a whole generation of us that grew up in this weird media period in which the very form, uh, every single aspect of our work has altered except sort of writing sentences. Yes. Uh, and now we have this new, this AI bot that is completely able to replace almost all of us. Right? Can I make you feel better about that, actually? I've been working on a column that I hope will run next week where I have been testing these various AIs against sort of using as a test of their creativity, their ability to generate children's literature or match the illustrations for children's literature for sort of whimsy and power. I'm trying to measure what I'm thinking of as sort of the whimsy gap. And so with ChatGPT, this latest chatbot from OpenAI, I've been asking it to tell me stories and giving it the sort of the basic contours of great children's literature. So Where the Wild Things Are, Harry Potter, you know, A Bargain for Francis. The stories are terrible, right? Like they're all these incredibly sort of moralistic little golden books about, you know, well, you know, Benjamin was sent to bed without any dinner and he imagined being in nature and then he felt better because of his imagination and he learned that he should probably eat his dinner and the end. Right. That sounds great. I didn't, so, what's the problem with that? It's a perfectly good children's. Oh, come on. The best children's literature is full of scamps and rogues and eccentricity. Okay. But it's been it's been hugely comforting for me. It's like if the as long as the whimsy gap remains as big as it is, I think you and I are still in business. So it, the whimsy gap becomes sort of the Turing test for writing kiddie literature. Yes. But it's going to the, the terrifying thing, Alyssa, is that it gets better all the time. We don't. We we get better for a while, then we slowly deteriorate. But this this stuff can 
can can achieve, you know, all sorts of heights. We'll see. I mean, it gets better as it learns more about us, right? I mean, and, you know, I'm sort of joking about the whimsy gap, but the truth is, I mean, my guess from playing with these tools is that very few of them have been trained on children's literature, right? And, you know, all of these AIs are powered by just big globs of data and information that are fed into them. And so, you know, if you play around with the image creators like Midjourney or Dolly Mini, none of them have any idea about children's illustration styles, for example. So you can actually test what's in the set by asking it to do something in the style of a particular artist. And in most cases, it just has no idea who any of these artists are. So, you know, maybe as, you know, ChatGPT reads a lot of Alice Provinson and Chronicles of Narnia, it will get better at telling us stories. But right now, I almost think of these, you know, these AIs as, you know, they're like weird children who've been locked up in a Romanian orphanage with, you know, whatever sets of data their creator decided was interesting. But they have totally been locked out from some of the great sort of spiritually and imaginatively nurturing experiences of life. And, you know, maybe maybe, maybe that's how we keep the AI from ch- killing us, right? Like we sit them down and be like, so there was this man named J.R.R. Tolkien. And we're going to take you on a journey through Middle Earth. And they all decide they want to be like Aragorn and we're good. Or, you know, they they read a lot of children's literature and decide they're super or they just want to be Voldemort and we're all doomed. So tell me, what did you read as a kid? Where were you, where were you born and, and grew up? So I grew up sort of all over New England. I was born in Connecticut. My family moved to Vermont when I was seven and then to Massachusetts when I was 11, following jobs for my father, who's a magazine editor. But your father, what, what magazines did he edit? He runs the Harvard Alumni Magazine now and has oh, really? for the past quarter century. You know, not to, not to brag on my dad too much, but it is the single greatest sort of college alumni magazine because they do actual reporting. They go out and, you know, they he covers the university as if it's a business and has covered you know, Harvard's international expansion. So I've traveled to Chile and China and even Myanmar with him on reporting trips. So his... But it's still an alumni. It ha- you, you can't... There aren't slashing takedowns of Harvard presidents there. Uh, I mean, it's got it's got to be it. it, it, it that's what it is, right? It's, it, it's a fundraising. Well, up I mean, with Harvard kind of thing. I get it. By I the mean, way. ask Larry Summers. My father was the guy who reported his comments on gender that got him in so much trouble. So, I mean, he's never, you know, yes, it's for alumni who are interested in the state of the university, but he's done, you know, real tough reporting there. And I think it's it's made it much more interesting. To is, that, is that one of the reasons you became interested in being a journalist? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I, so my father, un, you know, to tell the story of me as a writer, you have to almost go back a little bit further because have you ever heard of William Zinzer, the writing teacher, wrote on writing well? So any, almost any college writing course in America is going to include a Zinzer text. And my dad, the Zinzer's books grew out of a course that he taught at Yale that my dad took when he was an undergraduate. And he and Zinzer became sort of lifelong friends. And my dad, as a result, is, I think, sort of a really remarkable and unheralded, you know, writing, you know, spotter of writing talent. I like to say that I'm my father's least talented protege because he, in his capacity, Harvard Magazine has a fellowship for undergraduates. And so, 
you know, he's worked with people like Nathan Heller and Lizzie Whittacombe at the New York, who are now at the New Yorker and Vogue, Sewell Chan, who's running the Texas Tribune, and then like little old me. <laughs> yeah, I might call him at the Washington Post. I got there eventually. <laughs> but he, yeah, my father is an amazing, amazing writing teacher. And he started editing me really when I was around 12. I sort of need to dial back even further than that to when I was eight. When I got my first professional writing gig, I wrote children's book reviews for my local paper in Vermont, and they paid me in gift certificates to the local bookstore. Totally illegal child labor arrangement. But I still have the clips from that, which include... I'm going to describe this, but it's a really good thing that the internet didn't exist because I would be so blackmailable based on the author photo where I had these like little pink glasses and like a little, oh. you know, ruffled like neck thing. It Adorable. Just, I mean, yeah. So it's adorbs. I, I hope it's adorable. It's it's really good that it's not online. But, you know, and I had that gig in part because I grew up in a house just surrounded by books. You know, my family did not really watch television growing up. My mem- my first memory of TV is my parents getting a TV so they could watch the Clinton Bush debates in 92. And we didn't have cable and we're living in, you know, semi-rural Vermont. And so it's like, all sort of fluttery, you know, staticky on the screen. And, you know, I I got raised to a certain extent on really classic cinema like Buster Keaton, silent movies and stuff. But really, it was all about books. And my mother in particular has always been really interested in children's books. So I grew up not just with your standard sort of Dr. Seuss, but with, you know, like early editions of Peter Spear, the Dutch American illustrator who you know did a tremendous number of great mid-century children's books on Alison Martin Provinson, who do these incredible books about like the animals at their farm. And you know, I was I was apparently kind of a slow reader to start out. And my best friend, I think when I, I must have been five or six apparently told me that she'd learned to read. And I came home and just taught myself how to do it instantly. But so books were always just the central thing. That's such, that childhood is all, is pretty much unknown <laughs> today, right? But this is, the, the, to have no access to TV, let alone the internet, be surrounded by books. I mean, I there were almost no books in, in my house. I didn't. Really? I had, well, no, my parents were not, Readers. didn't go to college. And, yeah. and it was all TV Except for when you got to the, there was a local library, which I could go up to and, and get stuff out. And it's not that they didn't support me reading, but but it was a, a different atmosphere about reading. And, and it, it was a real choice to read as opposed to just absorbing the world through images and the radio, which was the other huge thing mm. when I was growing up. But what a privilege in a way to have been saturated in that kind of literature for, for so such a young age what was the what was the book that that was there a single book that really took your imagination and 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 inspired you to to i mean why aren't you writing children's books let me put it that way <laughs> i worry that I, I think i'm probably too prosaic a soul and i love sharing them right it's like i i'm never i don't think i have that artistic temperament where i want to be like locked up in a room creating something i like to spot things that are great and say like you have to read this. You you have to see this. I have to talk to you about this because it's so compelling. But I, I don't, you know, I tell my daughter like extremely terrible bedtime stories, but I don't think I have an artist's soul. I have a sort of curator's and a sharer's soul. But no, it was a gift to grow up that way. I mean, 
you know, I don't know that there's one book, but my mother, my sister's four years younger than I am. And around the time that she was born, my mom started reading me Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House books. And she read all of them to me in sequence. My dad read me Farmer Boy, which is the book in the series that's told from the perspective of Wilder's eventual husband, Almanzo Wilder. And we cried at the end of the book because they were done, right? And my mom read the concluding scene from the concluding book in the series, These Happy Golden Years at My Wedding. And, you know, there are such interesting books. And I was – maybe I was kind of young to read them. I'm actually reading them to my daughter right now. She's four as well. And they're tough books in some ways. I mean, they are, you know, chronicles of the front of life on various frontiers. And so, you know, the characters are at real risk sometimes, you know. You will have a story about someone's grandfather being, you know, going out for an errand, not bringing his gun and getting chased home by a panther. And you don't know if he is going to end up eaten. The characters get malaria. They are almost burned out by prairie fires. And so... You know. Awesome. Do, aren't you, don't you find that a certain number of children's books are now so careful in avoiding any sort of danger, scary stuff, things that can go wrong? But children's books, as I grew up, were about adventure, sure. about risk-taking, and about the consequences of that, about things that could go wrong. I mean, it was I, – I grew up on Enid Blyton. Yes. Yep. And she was awesome, although I'm sure she'd be banned today. But the famous five – Yep. I read basically every single one in that series, all very formulaic, but were clearly designed for children, but really were about adventure, you know, and risk and puzzling things out in a way that one feels today children are sort of a, a more, more coddled, told to be safe and not engage in that kind of risk-taking behavior. Well, I, I think you're getting at two separate things. One is, you know, they a lot of these books reflect a world in which children were both freer and had more responsibilities, yeah. right? I mean, you know, in the Little House books, you know, the kids have chores and significant household responsibilities. The house could not run without them, without, you know, the labor that like an eight-year-old is providing as childcare for her younger sister or you know, the work of running back and forth to get water from the well or chips to smoke meat. But I also I also wonder, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot as I read the Little House books, is if those if that tendency towards making books less challenging is less about coddling children and more about taking labor off of parents. Because the Little House books require really active parenting if you're reading them to a child, you know, my daughter, I mean, she's four. She's a really smart, lovely, intuitive four-year-old, but she gets scared of things. And so it's, you know, it, reading the books together is partially an exercise in helping her manage fear and suspense, but also sort of learning narrative beats so that she can expect what's coming. But, you know, and again, I haven't read these books for a while. They have, a, you know, they require a lot of talking about racism and U.S. policy, the, you know, the main characters, the parents are presented as lovely people who are really vicious about the Indians whose territory they're colonizing. I mean, these are books for kids that includes discussions, uh, you know, that have adults who are sort of trusted within the world of the book saying, like, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. The, you know, the main character's mother is, you know, really openly racist and anxious. And, 
in a way that is not something that you can expurgate even if you skip over some of the language. And but the book, you know, part of what's interesting about the books and why I think they have survived is that the main character is sharp, you know, this little girl is sharp enough to see some of the, you know, the cracks in what her parents are saying or flaws in their logic. I mean, you know, she hears them talking about settlement and about being afraid that, you know, the Native Americans in the area will retaliate. And she says, well, we're on their land, you know, and her par- you see her parents evading those questions or, you know, telling her that, you know, oh, little girls shouldn't get into these things. And so, you know, I, I think the books are stone cold classics. They're just masterpieces of children's literature. But I have to be engaged. I have to talk to her about those things. You know, I, I don't, I'm never going to give up those books. But I'm also, I don't want to be passive about them either. And a book that doesn't include any, you know, racial attitudes from 100 years ago or any challenging scenarios, that you can just hand to a kid and walk away. But a book that includes things that challenge your values as a family, you have to be actively involved in reading that with your child. You have to talk about it. You you can't have sort of the author do all of the work for you. And, you know, I I am finding this challenging as a parent, right? I mean, I... I didn't really set I didn't entirely prepare myself to like read these books with my kids and have these conversations, but it's on me to get them right. And I think that has been really good practice for me as a parent, you know, and we're not like I'm not sitting there with her being like, Ma and Pa are bad people because they're racist. What we're sitting there and saying, like, you know, you have, you know, this wonderful nanny who's taken care of you since you know, you were born, how would you feel if someone talked about her or made assumptions about her? How, how old is your daughter? She's four. She's four? Yeah. Is there no age at which a parent shouldn't be teaching kids about political or social stuff? I know. I noticed you, you have this 99 books for kids that you <laughs> yes. just put out. And I'm like, so I start reading it and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And this is lots of fun. In the first section, from birth to four, there's a pro-labor, pro-environment book. There's a, there's a, I mean, it, it, it's as if we can't leave these children alone. They have to be, they have to be indoctrinated very, very young. Well, I mean, think about it, you know. Did you can't have... just let them read stories and make up their own minds? Well, let's, let's take a couple of things there. Did you read any Dr. Seuss books growing up? You know, it's not that big in England, to be honest, okay, Dr. Yeah. Seuss, but sure. And I don't, I don't love Dr. Seuss myself, no, I don't honestly. Either. The sort of the goofiness of it has always been kind of a turnoff for me. But, I mean, he's, you know, books like The Lorax are, you know, considered sort of stone-cold classics. Yertle the Turtle, which is his book about totalitarianism. And so, you know, I think to a certain extent, whether we consider these books like, you know, whether I think that we've accepted into the canon a lot of books where the authors are bringing in big ideas about the world and how it works. I mean, Charlotte Zolotow, who is a you know, real classic mid-century children's author, wrote her first book, The Park Book, in part because she was irritated that there were no books for children that were set in the city, right? They were all sort of these rural pastoralist fantasies. And, you know, it's a very innocent book in a lot of ways, but it includes, you know, the it's 
sort of the, a day in the life of a park. And so it includes, you know, someone who's homeless who sleeps in the park and it doesn't really comment on it. It's just there. But kids are really curious. They ask questions. And so, you know, I mean, my daughter started asking me why people had different color skin when they were really young. And I'm not going to, you know, sit down with her and talk about like the full history of systematic racism in the United States, because that requires me to involve you know, explaining like economics. And there are just all these layers of things that she's not going to so get. Did, but how, she, did you, how did you answer that question? Let's see. I mean, I guess we talked about how people come from different parts, you know, people and their families come from different parts of the world. And, you know, like we all look a little different in various ways. And there's a whole continuum of how people look. I mean, but when when she asked why, what, what we, we didn't we did not get into questions, yeah questions we didn't are, get into Mendelian ge- genetics. But did you get into like exposure to the sun? Like that's why people in the middle of the earth <laughs> tend to have darker skin than people at the other ends. Yes, that... I you know I look I've had a second child since then. I'm so sleep deprived. I'm not totally <laughs> yeah, sure. I can't I, I can't believe you're doing anything. Frankly, when you have one year old and a four year old, you know. But yeah, but you know, in terms of. I mean, kids ask questions about this stuff. You would be amazed at of what they ask. And so, I mean, and I feel like, you know, people always make fun of people on the Internet who tell stories about their like politically precocious children. But the stuff that they pick up on and ask about is astonishing. Right. I mean, you know, my husband is Matt Gertz, senior fellow at Media Matters. He's the guy who sort of cracked the code on figuring out that Trump was like live tweeting his Fox shows DVR'd. And so, like, she's heard about Donald Trump. She knows about Twitter. She likes to, she periodically will say, like, you're a Twitter as an insult, which I think is incredibly that's funny. A, that's that's um, fantastic. But she asked us at dinner the other day, she's like, if Donald Trump is a bad boy, why do you laugh about him? I was like, well, damn, how do I answer that question, right? And, like, we're not sitting around, like, talking to her about the news for the most part, but, you know, we're a family of two journalists but in children's books like about I, I, the one thing i thought that i loved was that they took me to different worlds they were books in which rabbits talk to one another for example i mean i think the the most powerful book in my imagination was watership down sure. growing up which is an extraordinary book and partly because it was that's where i grew up to in that kind of england so i was aware of rabbits and all the rest of it it was also terrifying but it was not trying to teach me something about justice or the world, at least as far as I could tell. Now, well, there, there, were, there was an evil person in it. There was General Woundwart, I think his name was. I'm trying to remember now. And you could see it as sort of actually a kind of par- parable for the Holocaust, actually, although I think that might be pushing it a little too far. But I, and that actually occurred to me as a, I think it was nine or 10 when I was reading it. But this desire to get into people's children's minds. So, for example, a lot of the the new books that are put out there in the in the the space for gender critical gender theory, they tell children as young as three or four, kindergarten or a, a little bit older, things like you can be a boy, and this is a, this is the phrase that comes up in a lot of books. You can be a boy or a girl, or neither. Or something else entirely. Basically, whatever you do, do not look at your bodies as if they tell you anything about whether you're a boy or a girl. I have to be honest. I have not read. I mean, I 
I try to have a policy of not commenting on books that I haven't read. And I honestly haven't encountered a lot of this stuff in the books that our daughter has gotten that it was part of the sort of new wave of publishing. So but I will say, I mean, I think that there's a distinction to be drawn between books that are sort of useful goads for families to talk about their values and how they want to live their lives and that sort of help kids ask questions, but that are narratively rich and that are, you know, that work on multiple levels, right? I mean, Watership Down, I'm sure, is a book that you could read today and see its salience in a million other areas. How do we make books attractive to children again? Because the iPad and the screens and the Snapchat and the, <laughs> the TikToks and these are incredible. I have nieces and nephews, niece and nephews, and I, I, I just look at them and I think, oh, all the hours that are being lost that you could be yeah. sitting there like following a, a long and difficult plot, for example, yeah. just the concentration required. I mean, when I think of the Narnia books, for example, yes. it helped that I was often sick as a kid because I used to read these in bed all yep. the time. I could, I have distinct memories of each part of that, but it went on forever and you needed real determination. And some of them weren't quite as they didn't quite they weren't as appealing as the previous one but you thought oh i'm going to get through this even the hobbit has some really long difficult passages you know let alone lord of the rings which i yep. went to immediately thereafter and was way too young for i couldn't i tried try reading the silmarillion when i was 11 which was a bad idea <laughs> it made me sort of or i read richard adams's shardick which was an alternative to what is which was completely impenetrable i have yep. no idea what was going going on with that how do we I mean, you by reading to them yep. is one way of doing it, but but one would think that, that one wouldn't want to have their experience not be themselves actually picking up the book and reading them. Yeah, and our, I mean, my daughter is like so on the cusp of being ready to learn to read, and I'm so excited for that for her, right? And, you know, I, I don't... I'm not sure I definitively have the answer. I mean, one thing that's really interesting in education policy right now is that there was this movement away from phonics and towards kids to read sort of from context clues. And it was, you know, I think the sense was that it was supposed to be better because it would engage children's interests more. And it is that sort of phonics was boring. And it's turned out not to work at all. Hmm. Right. And so, I mean, I think you have to kids have to be taught to read for themselves through a method that's effective so they can do it, right? I mean, there's nothing more depressing. Like, it's one thing to be slogging through a book where the content is just, like, wildly over your head. I read, my experience, I read Justine Gardner's Sophie's World when I was, like, 11 years old. And that was probably, you know, a history of philosophy. And you know, that's, a little, that's a little much. I, yeah. Here's one. Here's a book, Animal Farm. Yeah. Which... I read when I must have been 10 or 11, which actually is written in language that is completely understandable for a child. Now, that, that child may be completely unaware of the extraordinary par parable it's telling, but as a parable itself with its own characters, it's really kind of riveting. Charlotte's Web, I, I, was I, I, I remember reading it and just being completely heartbroken. I mean, I, I, I ended that book in completely shattered. And I think that's a good thing sometimes for a kid yeah. to just realize, also be aware of death and and life and the, the, the rhythms of these things. Of course, I was also, like many religious p kids brought up in certain religion. I mean, I also had 
the extraordinary stories of the Gospels and the Bible that were also a part of my, which which could not be scarier or more challenging. So, but Animal Farm's a good one. I mean, it, it's. Uh, I would. I wouldn't mind. I think you could read that pretty young, yeah, and have it sit with you a little bit. Certainly not 1984, obviously, but Animal Farm, yes. Yeah, and look, this is where you know. I mean, I think you've brought up some, you know, things that are happening in on the left that parents on the right might be concerned about. But this is where I would challenge parents on the right a little bit. Like, I think there's a tendency away from letting kids be scared or challenged or disturbed, frankly by things that they've read. And again, I think that's where you get some of these really interesting and important active parenting moments. You know, there is no transportation without challenge, right? There is no adventure without some danger. And, you know, I think a kid who reads voraciously is going to overstep sometime and going to read things that are inappropriate or upsetting or challenging. And, you know, no one no one wants to see their kid hurt or scared or sad, but developing the tools to deal with those hurts and, you know. And literature is part of that. Literature yeah. te- opens and you to a world. And it tests your values. It tests your values, too. And that's where, you know, you're talking, you know, you were sort of challenging me on the question of whether these books are sort of indoctrinating kids young. And I think the question is, you know, sort of how do you define, how do you draw a distinction between politics and values, right? And so... You know, my daughter's in an immersion nursery school. She, you know, again, has birth, has since birth, has been taught and cared for by women who are largely Central American immigrants. And so, you know, it has to be part of the values of our family that we, you know, people who don't speak perfect English are accorded our respect, are, you know, in our family, our authority figures, are people who, you know, have tremendous things to offer us. It has to be part of our family's values that, you know, people who look different, you know, again, have to be treated with respect that we, you know, we are not going to make assumptions based on how people look. And, you know, there is obviously there is a political dimension to race and racism in the United States. And we will get to those questions when she can comprehend when she can comprehend them. But to me, you know, sitting there with a book where there are characters who have who say things that are ugly and cruel. But the the argument that boys and girls are interchangeable and that you can invent yourself into being either one or the other, which is now fundamental to teaching children under four. That well, seems like a that seems that seems like a particularly big I mean, I don't know what else you would call that than indoctrination. Well, you're ta- I mean, you're talking about I, I mean, I just want to challenge the assumption, right? You're saying that's fundamental to teaching children under four. It's not something I've ever encountered in my kid's school in the curriculum that we're seeing. It's set in, in any number of curriculums now for, for, for the under fours, the under eights. I mean, are you, you know, just the, I mean, just we're not the, saying the, like one of the first forward. things you learn as a child is there are boys and there are girls. Yeah. That is now barred. You can't know that. Or if you do, it's just that this is entirely up to you which one you are or not. Again, that, I mean, that has not been my experience or the experience of, you know, all of the other parents that I know. I've just, I've yet to encounter that in a curriculum either here in the, you know, here, even, you know, I don't, 
I shouldn't. You know, I, I, I just, I. Well, we can, I can, yeah. we can talk about this. And I'll yeah, I'm we, happy to I can to definitely see show that, you a list of all the curriculums sure. in which this is now um, mandated. Sure. I, if you want to send that along, I'm happy to take a look. So, I mean, what's the, what's the question? I want to make sure. No, well, can, I'm just saying yeah. that, I'm just saying that I, I, I love children's books, but yeah. I think they are now being used by the educational establishment to to really get rid of the possibility of differences between the sexes from a very early age. Again, it's, I, you know, as a critic, as someone who, like, and, and look, I care a lot about text and characterizing things honestly. And so, you know, having not read a lot of these books I, and having not seen their use in a curriculum, I don't really feel comfortable talking specifically about how they're being used because I would be speaking without knowledge. Sure. And I don't think that's sure. intellectually honest of me. You know, but I, you know, earlier in our conversation, we were sort of talking about the idea of a library. And I do think parents, you know, the debate between the left and the right about sort of the role that parents should play in education, I think is playing out in a really unfortunate way, in part because I don't think, you know, I don't know a teacher who thinks that parents have no role in their children's education, right? Like it has to be collaborative, even if it's just on the level of like getting your kid to the classroom on time. And teachers can't do their jobs without collaboration from parents at home to make sure that expectations are consistent, that lessons are reinforced. And so, you know, I think that, and I don't know, you know, a parent who, you know, and look, I know homeschooling parents do a tremendous job with their children. I think that homeschooling is a valid choice, is a totally but valid choice. they're also choice. indoctrinating their children in a religious context. Well, I mean, it's not like the Charlotte Mason curriculum, you know, I mean, I don't think all like all of the curriculums aren't explicitly religious. One thing that's, you know, it's interesting, we're seeing a huge rise in homeschooling among black families who I think, you know, felt in some cases just deeply underserved by school closures or by school reopenings without, you know, improvements to school facilities during the pandemic. And so people homeschool for a lot of different reasons. And so, you know, if you, for example, if your choice is to send your kid back to a school that doesn't have air conditioning, doesn't have proper ventilation, and you're from a community that's seen huge numbers of people die or get sick during the pandemic, maybe you homeschool because you think that's safer for your family. There are, are all sorts of folks who, again, I think, you know, are seeking what feels to them to be a, you know, religious or culturally appropriate curriculum for their families. And Look, in the U.S., like part of our value system is that parents have pretty wide latitude over their children. And you can argue about whether that's correct or not, but it's certainly something that is deeply culturally ingrained here. And there's always been, you know, some tension about what we're supposed to provide kids in terms of their educations, in terms of schooling and what latitude we're supposed to allow parents. I don't know if you know Anya Kamenetz, the former NPR education reporter. She has a, bo a book out earlier this year called The Stolen Year that is about the way that our sort of sense of collective obligations to kids failed during the pandemic. But it's also a very useful history of sort of education, of free lunch programs. It's, you know, it's just sort of a good pricey of some of the tensions that are underlying. It does feel like kids have suffered way more than people anticipated. Yeah. And certainly way in a way that the teachers unions seem to be utterly indifferent to. You know, and I... I find myself, and again, I'm someone who's of the left, who has, you know, done a lot of 
union related work in college. I'm a member of, you know, my union at the Washington Post. We're in bargaining right now. So if you care about your Washington Post journalists, you know, know that we're going through that. And I found some of the sort of tactical, you know, even just even if you just think tactically, right, not even in terms about, you know, values. Why on earth would you suggest on any level that in-person instruction isn't essential, right? I mean, if you're advocating for teachers, you need to constantly be making the case that being in school, butts in seats, a teacher in front of you is the best way to get an education, which I think it clearly is. I mean, if you look at the studies, if you look at test results, if you look at you know, the studies coming out of, you know, Harvard and Calder and other places. I mean, it's going to take an enormous effort to catch up what has been done to kids. Yeah. And so, look, I think the moment that we're seeing in education policy is driven by a lot of things. It's driven by pandemic era closures. It's, div- it's driven by, you know, really deep differences on how you, you know, set policy, school policy around, you know, to around trans kids. You know, it's it's really challenging. And I mean, I think the right was very unified and ultimately correct on the idea that schools should be open. The left was really divided on you know, school reopening, on masking policies for kids. And I think those differences have not entirely been resolved. And so I think you have just a whole sort of cocktail of things right. happening in education right now that you know, feed on each other in some ways. And well, let, let's let's yeah. let's move on to <laughs> sure. some stuff. Sorry, I realized we got through like none of my backstory at all because we dived into children's books. Well, and we, but that not. was your backstory in a way. Yes, but you come from a you 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 come from a very literate, obviously educated <laughs> family, but and you loved writing, and yes. you loved reading. Yes. So uh, there's no mystery why you ended up in journalism, right? Yes. And I will say, I mean, I mentioned my father starting to edit me really early. I did this. God, I would, I, I, that would have driven me crazy. It was really hard in the beginning. I was doing, there's a competition called National History Day, and there's sort of a theme or a topic every year, and you can compete in various ways. You can do you know, displays or performances or write papers. And so, of course, I wrote papers. And of course, my father sat me down with a red pen and destroyed my drafts year after year. And I hated it the first three years. I think I, you know, I- How old were you again? This started when I was 12. And I mean, I- Isn't that cheating? <laughs> I mean, I had seriously- to do the writing. No, no, no. If you have someone, if you have an adult editing and refining your essays, that's goddamn cheating. I don't think so. <laughs> Wow, I don't know. No, no. I maybe you know. Maybe no, I'm being what about the other kids that here? don't have Mr. Brilliant Writing editorial advice? Anyway, I would, uh, I would give every child in the world the benefit of my father's editing. If I well, could, yes, but, but the um, thing is that <laughs> very few have that. If only if my only, dad every now and again would help me with my math because it was pretty rare times. But obviously, the, I mean, I was a weird kid anyway, so. But let's talk about things that we both have watched <laughs> yes. so we can actually talk without just talking about generalities. Sure. And we talked about two movies we thought we'd talk about. One is Bros, the, uh, what's his name, Billy Eichner romantic comedy. comedy. And the other was Tar, this astonishing film about a conductor yes. uh, who really has a system of grooming and dispensing with various young women. And what was interesting about Tar, maybe we'll start with that, because it was, it, it's a, it's, first of all, it's Kate Blanchett. So there's, 
I, I, I've never seen her not give a brilliant performance. What I found fascinating about it was that it, it tackled the question of sexual, well, harassment, it's a complicated, it's more, it's a very subtle, interesting movie. We don't see any sexual acts. Yep. We see actually nothing directly inappropriate as such in, in the film, as if to say sexual harassment is not really, well, let's just say that is trying to get to the pure heart of what's going on, which is power and, and a brilliant person's sociopathy in many respects. Forgive us if there are spoilers here, but, but it's been out for months. You don't get a spoiler warning. Watch Tar. It's great. It's streaming. <laughs> it is. It has a very, has a weird and not terribly plausible ending, yeah. uh, but I, I didn't know what, what, where they were going to take it. But it's only women. It's a lesbian movie, if we're allowed to use that word anymore. Of course. Well, <laughs> the head of the human rights campaign won't use it about herself. But let's, it is about a lesbian and her partner, her wife, actually, a kid, and her protégés. It does raise some interesting questions about specifically in you know, teaching or in promoting or mentorship it's it's extremely hard. What I liked about it because it took it out of the realm of heterosexuality and just made it pure about that. It's a am I being too subversive in saying something erotic is kind of in that inevitably. It requires controlling and shutting down at certain points, but 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 the the subtly the subtlety with which the movie showed this this woman, this brilliant woman's capacity to control others in a way that and destroy others was really chilling. Yes. And I think you're right to point out the sort of erotic component of it, right? Because, you know, it is a very it's a movie about people playing roles, right? And so there's this very I mean, just the dynamic between the main character and her wife is fascinating in that it takes this turn sort of, you know, three quarters of the way through the movie. You know, initially we've been presented with a scenario where her wife is kind of fragile and, you know, in need of reassurance. She's like, she's the first violin in the orchestra that Lydia conducts. And then once, you know, Lydia's misdeeds kind of go public, including through this, you know, sort of doctor video of her taking down a student at sort of a Juilliard. So basically how I understood, because there's a conversation between her and her wife. Mm -hmm. I mean, the key, the key fact is that this woman promotes, rears, and then dispenses with beautiful young women who are part of her ensemble, presumably when they get a little too close or when they might outshine her. We don't quite know when why she drops a little them. too much. Yes. Well, they get a little too, and then she cuts them off really badly. And she does it in one respect. This poor woman kills herself. Yes. She's so destroyed. The wife was one of those mentees. So she was part of the process. And she has a conversation with Lydia uh, uh, towards the end saying, you know, we sat down together and you plotted how you were going to get to the top yep. and how we were going to do all this. And she has obviously observed girl after girl after girl, woman after woman after woman. They're quite young. So she knows full well what her wife is up to. But there's this switch in the dynamic where she's, I mean, she's just like, this is not what we agreed to. 
and you know what and, she, they didn't agree to was her doing stuff without her her approval in advance well i think what they didn't agree to was her slipping up getting sloppy right like ruining it for both of them and to me the real shift in the power dynamic comes i mean and you see hints of it right i mean in that the first scene where you meet her wife you know, Lydia's like getting her this anti-anxiety medication and sort of calming her down. And then it becomes clear throughout the course of the movie that like she's stealing her wife's anti-anxiety medication, that she is fragile in certain ways. And, you know, she's this character has this enormous need to exert control. And her wife takes her child away from her, right? Like she just cuts her off completely steely about it, denies her access to their child, denies her that sort of dominance. And it raises this fascinating question about the extent to which the whole dynamic of their relationship has been role play, right? And it's, again, it's a movie that is so much about sort of performance, right? Like there's this incredible scene where Lydia learns that her daughter's been bullied at school and she goes and tracks down this girl and introduces herself as her daughter's father, which I think is so... And again, like seeing this, like this sort of butch femme dynamic on screen, it was something that's you know, so, I mean, lesbians are so rarely portrayed in film, period. But then to have that specific dynamic on screen, I thought was so interesting. But then she just... subtler than just butch femme, I think. Yeah, And I I think in that particular, they're both quite femme, actually. Although, I mean, Lydia's wearing these, you know, bespoke suits. And I mean, she wears, they dress her in a a lot of tweeds. But she even in, you know, you don't see her wearing dresses outside of work, right? She's wearing like, tweeds and these just mm. immaculately tailored suits mm. like she's you know i mean you see the sort of like the paper suit forms and everything but yeah i mean it just it raises these questions about the extent to which like everything is perform if you're someone for whom everything is sort of performance everything is this act of supreme control you know, what happens when you try to impose that on people who are messier and more human? You know, what happens when people and what happens when people sort of think they're consenting to the game and then maybe don't have the ability to see it all the way through, right? Or just the cost. Yes. Personally, of seeking power. Yeah. Constantly seeking power and fame, which requires a little compromise here, a little compromise there, another compromise there until it becomes the only thing you care about. And you see this, God, we live in a city where it's full of it. And her wife says at one point, you know, every single relationship you've ever had is transactional, including her wife. Yes. Except her daughter. Yes. And that, of course, she's she's taken, that's in the end, the daughter is taken away from. It's not clear that the wife does that. Someone else comes in and and, and takes takes the kid away from school. Oh, no, I thought that's her wife. Really? Yeah. I thought it was a third person, but but anyway, maybe I maybe I, I I didn't see that. Yeah. But but in the end, she's miserable. She is terribly lost, and you sort of want vindication for her. You want you kind of want some. Well, either you want justice, right? Yeah. You want to see this person, and she is brought down. Yeah. Although there's no legal consequence, as far as I can tell, unless unless her she leaves the country yeah. and goes somewhere completely obscure, where she goes back to just doing music however badly and or in whatever excruciating a context yeah but i so it's not clear to me that anything should happen to her legally right i mean her behavior seems immoral in the sense that not in the sense that what she's doing is like clearly defined sexual harassment but that it's cruel 
right? I mean, she is dishonest with people. She strings along her assistant with this sort of promise that she's going to get an important role in the orchestra and then, you know, doesn't do it. She, you know, she cheats on her wife. She's she's an At the same person. time, she clearly devotes herself to these mentees. Yes. But this is the other part of it, that 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 it's a it's complicated yes but yes i she these and these women would never have these opportunities without her she finds real talent the other fascinating part of the movie is you sort of expect she's going to pick a dud because she's hot yeah. when she's picking a blind audition she figures out who it is and she's just attracted to her so she she thinks she's going to put and in any normal movie there'd be a point where you'd realize oh god that person can't do it and there'd be but no she can do it yes in fact, this cellist she's she brilliant is genius yes that cellist also is 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 of the generation to be manipulating her yes and that's part of what's i mean an interesting question about the movie is whether her assistant and the cellist are running a long con on her. Yeah. Right? Because there are a number of scenes in the movie where Lydia is being filmed by someone. Yeah. And, or someone is texting someone else about her and we don't see who it is. It's never quite right. revealed. And, you know, we know that both her assistant and the cellist she's mentoring sort of lie to her at various points. And so it's a tremendously uneasy movie. It is. And I I so appreciate that about it, right? Because... You know, look, it's I mean, it's so important for the Harvey Weinsteins and the Bill Cosby's of the world to face legal accountability. But the sort of moral reckonings for conduct that is that's not illegal, that shouldn't be illegal, but that is not moral and that is in some cases multidimensionally not moral. We are such a long way from sorting all of that out. And it was sort of it was a shame to me that Tar got presented as like the cancel culture movie, right? Because it's so much more than that. It is, and um, I love the fact that it didn't condescend to me, that it kept me. It's slow. I mean, it takes a long time for you to understand what's, what's going on, and it's quiet. And what you feel, in a ways that I think are very hard to do is the the allure, the slow tentacles of power and the attractions of power that corrupt you from inside, even, even though you're doing good at the same time. So as a sophisticated movie, I'm just so grateful for it, which takes us to the other movie we've been talking about, Bros, this thing that I was told I have to go see <laughs> or I would be a bad gay. Not that I'm, I'm already a bad gay, but I, 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 it, was, it, was, it was a commandment that if we don't see this, we are a bunch of hateful homophobes. And, and people didn't, lots of straight people didn't see it because, in fact, well, why do you think lots of straight people didn't see it? I mean, Billy Eichner was so upset about it. Yeah. He threw a strop blaming the audience I mean, for I not coming to see his masterpiece. Well, I think advertising it as a historical moment was a huge mistake, right? Because, like, actually, it's like a hot, funny, romantic comedy. It's like, oh, you mean when they would say, oh, we're doing a breakthrough because yeah, every right? cutie like, BIPOC person in the world is in it. Right. I mean, I thought, I mean, I actually, so as a casting gambit i thought that was cool right in part because it pushes back against the idea that and this is something i don't love about the sort of diversity movement in hollywood the idea that people can only play roles that correspond to their real world identity because i think that's ultimately very limiting for members of minority communities right i mean you know the actual push should be for you know 
trans actresses to be playing straight women, like cis straight women on screen, because that's where the roles are, right? I mean, if you say that, you know, only trans people can play trans characters, you're going to end up, you know, shunting those folks into roles that are just rarely available at all. And so to take a movie that has both gay and straight characters and say every single one of these characters is going to be played you know, like we're not actually going to match everybody's identity up. We're going to showcase this full range of talent. Smart Gambit should not have been the sort of advertising point of the movie. And the breakthrough nature of it shouldn't have been advertised as the point of the movie. The whole thing should have been selling like romantic comedies of the dead. Billy Eichner is going to be the gay Billy Crystal. And so you're suddenly going to like sell it as like a gay when Harry met Sally, right? Like it's a very talky in some ways a very cerebral movie right you know it's sort of fascinating to me watching it and revisiting the time I spent in college arguing with Larry Kramer over whether we should call Abraham Lincoln gay right I mean like it's Abraham Lincoln yeah right I mean this that was one of Larry's like obsessions because uh, he was right uh, <laughs> although was this, he is right? A, this like, is a case where Larry and I have complete agreement but the, I mean the homosexuality didn't exist in 1855 so it's like sort of hard to make the well, case the, it, but it, yes. it sure did well we but may, the, it may not have had a name right the, but, but like, the idea that men were not falling in love with men Right, in the, the 19th century is of crazy. Course, but the historically contingent nature of the identity as we understand it today doesn't exist. Today. Well, I don't understand it that way today. <laughs> uh, uh, Fair enough. Um, but it's, I mean, it is a very, it's a talky, cerebral movie that, you know, where the relationship is developed really well, right? I mean, in the sense that... I mean, I'm, I, I'll, I'll, I'll front. I, I, <laughs> you hated it. Well, I hate romantic comedies. I mean, I'd rather die than go sit through a romantic comedy. And that goes, I mean, I just, it's just the genre. It's, it's, and I think that's another problem. If this is directed towards gay men, we're not interested in romantic comedies because we're men and they bore us. And especially when Eichner's character, not quite clear whether it's a character or whether <laughs> it's Billy Eichner, I don't know, because it's, it's so repellent a human being in every single way that you don't, you just, you don't care what happens to him and you feel sad for the the other half who seems to be perfectly nice chap <laughs> seems to be ensnared in this narcissist <laughs> lecturing haranguing bully i mean i was i i was wondering though what you thought of it as essentially like a send-up of the modern movement right because like it's pretty bitingly funny about the demand for like Every community in the ever-expanding acronyms, like, sort of get its say over this museum. Like, yeah, like the, you know, the final, you know, the final scene where it's like you're getting, you know, you're walking in and getting, like, scanned for your point on the Kinsey scale. Like, it's pretty, it's a pretty funny send-up. It did have some funny moments. Of modern, like, LGBT politics in some ways. Uh, I I mean, maybe not biting enough. No. But it's still, (laughs) I think, in a weird way, the fact that that element of satire is in the movie at all is sort of the most challenging thing about it because i think you know it's those are thorny conversations and yeah. sort of poking fun at them yeah in you know but again i can see that i, I can yeah. see that, that they have a round table once in which every consonant is represented in some way or and form. all arguing from the most like sort of myopic like the most online version of itself yeah. but yeah no this is a movie that should have been advertised to straight women as like the gay when Harry met Sally. That's how you like. If you but want straight people to see that movie, but, that's how you advertise but, it. But, yeah, but 
I'm not sure straight women are quite prepared for some of those sex scenes for some of the, the I mean, I thought it was funny because, but you have to be super, super saturated in the weirdnesses of a very particular subculture to really find, because you have the, there was uh, so, uh, somebody who I, I, this is a friend of a friend who once said uh, of a movie that he saw that was essentially based in hip hop that he, he watched it and he simply said halfway through, you know, I do not have the cultural capital to engage the narrative. <laughs> and I think most people didn't have the cultural capital to engage that narrative. But, but, but uh, you know, it was fine. I mean, that's, I think it's great that there are B-movie rom-coms that feature two gay men. Fantastic. Why not? Well, I think, and but, maybe it's, you know, to a certain extent, you know, it's, yeah, it's, in a way, I think it's good that it can be made and fail, right? Yeah. Like, I sort of, but I also just, you know, I think selling all of this stuff as historic turns it into an obligation in a way oh, that's it's so exhausting. boring, too, or just done. I mean, I... Yeah. I, I I've been to so many of these historic movies and yeah. I'm just sick of it. I remember the birdcage just feeling absolutely mortified by it. I, I have a <laughs> – there have been a few, like The Weeknd, yep. uh, which is a brilliant movie, but as good as Tar. You know, Tar is essentially about lesbian love, but it, it, it was not about that. That that was its that was its, con- that was its context, but yep. then it was about something yep. human. And I think Weekend was also had its contact, contact, a Moonlight too, for example, yeah. another just spectacular film, which, in which you're not trying to be historic. I mean, yeah. I didn't feel he, I mean, it was historic because, yeah. but that movie wasn't driven by that. It didn't feel anyway. It was driven by love and an individual and just his his evolution and his struggles that any human being can relate to. I don't think you, and I think even in Tar, you can, a, a man can watch that and see it himself in The Woman of Lydia no. quite easily because it's a very human experience. It was also just the bros, just also kind of clunky, you know, formulaic stuff. But, it, you know, I, I, I will admit I, I, I had, I laughed out loud at two or three times and I'm happy that a few elbows were lurched <laughs> towards us where we, we, we make fun of ourselves in private all the time and seem unable to do so in public for reasons that are a little due to our insecurity, I think. I suspect that that's going to be a movie that gets a reappraisal in five to ten years where it's like it can get a little bit out of its context. You know, maybe it feels a little bit less fraught, but it is, I mean, it is just a really funny, like, it's an amusing political document in some ways, and I'm glad it exists. And I feel sort of bad for Eichner, because I actually think it does represent, like, a pretty big artistic step forward for him. And I hope that he doesn't, like, I hope he keeps making movies and telling stories, because I do think that sort of neurotic, you know, self-critical voice is kind of distinct. And if he can tone it a little bit better, I think he might really get somewhere. But you can't take disappointment too hard, especially not when the like when the movie, the whole movie going ecosystem is totally screwed up right now. You can't emotionally blackmail viewers. It's yes. just like just you yeah. know it, it. That's don't blame the voters. In other yeah. words, it's like you know produce something, and you sometimes you know some of the greatest works of art ever are complete duds upon arrival. I yeah. mean, it, it's it's true throughout history. What was I'm just going to get a little feisty here. What was the genuinely worst thing you, you, you've endured in the popular culture this year? Oh, man. That is a tricky question. Let me think about that for a second. I'm um, going to say, uh, but yeah, while you, I'm you gonna go say, first. I, I want to I praise two things which I thought were really amazing. 
One is Slow Horses. Yes. This is on Apple TV, which is just the most extraordinarily wonderful character act. And Gary Oldman, of course, is just extraordinary. There's a cast of characters of this clapped out old spy put out to pasture, of course, actually is the smartest of them all, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a, it was so engrossing. His character was so repellent. But here's an interesting thing. You know, you could, Gary Oldman can do this absolutely hideous, farting, burping, overeating, chain-smoking, disgusting-looking person who abuses his staff in, like, in ways that would, he would last 30 seconds in a modern workplace. But, of course, the abuse is really part of his love for the, the people he's supporting. And it, and it just – I just long for those characters. I long for the characters that can be ornery, difficult, but are good people deep down – and their struggle against systems, and as well as lots of drama. I think it was just probably one of the most perfect pieces of acting and mm. of production. And and they did two seasons, and the next one is just coming out, which I can't wait to see. They did it at the same time, so instead of doing a doing it now, the so that I thought was just superb. The other thing I've done, partly because I've been sick, but also partly because I I just decided I would. I've rewatched all of Game of Thrones mm. in the last. I'm, I'm on season eight now. I'm, I'm just about to, to get into the final season, the final much maligned season, which I will also go out on a limb and say I did not find as bad as everyone else seemed to when I first watched it. I'm fascinated to see how I feel about it this time around. But as a work of art, I, the characters, the, the, the extraordinary plots, the complexity and the way it's all brought together and the incredible cinematography. I mean, I, I'm in awe of it. I think it still stands as one of the great achievements of the decade that this thing was put out there. And it's clearly a new level of television, I think, that I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I it's interesting because I sort of made my career on some level by writing about Game of Thrones, right? Like that was it was something I did when I was at Think Progress. It was a huge staple of what I did in my early years. At the you Post. did a recap, of- yes. So I would I filed you these, nerd. Like, yeah. Oh, a huge nerd. Never denied it. Did you read the books? Of course. Oh, my God. Oh, you're one of those. I've done events with George R. R. Martin. Like, you I'm, have? George yeah. R. 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 Martin? He's so lovely. I'm um, sure he is. Yeah. He's a um, genius. I, I really, I hope he can finish the books. But, you know, art is weird. It's complicated. It's hard to get right. So, yeah, I, and I thought Game of Thrones has always struck me as one of those works that was hugely successful and still kind of misunderstood. Right. Because, you know, there are people who loved it as just this like brutal, like fantasy adventure. And there are people who hated it because they're like, oh, it's all tits and dragons. Right. It's exploitation. It's like rape because they're in, you know, into it. Tits and wieners and yeah. dragons. Yes. Lots of wieners. I love yes. the wieners. Yeah. I felt I felt for the first time seen. <laughs> Your, your needs were met. Well, they, you know, they were, our interest was peaked occasionally, yes. <laughs> Literally and metaphorically. But, and I think sometimes the showrunners themselves didn't always understand what I thought was powerful about the material, which is that this is a series about how violence deforms the society and about how honor culture deforms the society, right? I mean, you know, and it's, It was such an interesting show to have coming out during this big society-wide reckoning with sexual violence because among the messages of the shows is that – of the show is that victimhood does not always confer moral authority, right? I mean, 
someone like Sansa Stark gains tremendous wisdom from the really brutal process by which her illusions are stripped away from her. But people like Cersei Lannister and Daenerys Targaryen don't necessarily become better or wiser or more morally authoritative people by virtue of what they've suffered. Sometimes suffering is just deforming. Sometimes it is just distorting. And that is a really painful thing for anyone to say, much less for sort of a wildly popular mass piece of art to say. And the sort of the depth of the societal critique in the work married to just the huge investment in the entertainment value, I think is a really striking thing. And look, Game of Thrones works if you're there for the dicks and dragons, right? Like if that's the only thing you're coming to the show for, it totally works as a piece of entertainment. But it, you know, as with so many great works, it invites sort of repeated readings. And, you know, it's it is a totally different show to me to revisit as a parent than it was something that I watched as a kid. I found watched, as I say, as a kid, as someone, you know, in my you know, it's not that 20s. long ago. It's like a decade ago. Yeah, really. but still, I mean, that, yeah. you know, that decade is important when it's a yeah, quarter yeah. of your life than yes, when no, it I involves understand. children. And I mean, look. It's, but a four-year-old, you're not going to, I mean, you don't I, have I a, am not going to show a four-year-old Game of Thrones. I I, <laughs> <laughs> I would I would hold off a little bit. Yeah. No, On the other hand, the, the Lord, let, let, let me, the, the, I, one thing about Game yeah. of Thrones I want to say is that you're right, except I think there is a, a really core realism about power. That yes. That actually is 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 real and persuasive in in many instances. I I'm I'm in love with like the past in so many ways, and and the way in which it conjured up what it must have been like. Really, it was it's a sort of fantasy of with extreme realism, which is it's it's a weird combination. If you look at the Lord of the Rings thing that they've just done, yeah. That was his fantasy. I never felt in any way near Earth or Middle Earth or anywhere. It was yeah. like in a Hallmark card, the whole thing. It's, a, uh, it's like living in VR. It's what the metaverse is it supposed was, to be it like. Was. Exactly. It felt like it felt like I was in some gauzy metaverse in which I didn't mind all the multicultural stuff. It's all fine. It's all bloody fantasy anyway. Who cares? It's a little weird that a race that lives underground all the time should somehow be darker than those who live on the surface. But whatever. But it was... I have to say, one of the show's great performances from that actress, though. She was tremendous. Oh, the, 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 queen, the queen dwarf yes. or whatever. Yes, I thought she was one of the best She was the great. Show. She was fantastic. Yeah, she was good. I thought the lead, though, was so boring. Oh, my God. She had the, the, the... What was her name again? Forgive me. But no character development whatsoever. I might also say that about the House of Dragons, yeah. Which had a fantastic performance by oh, the, the the king Viserys. Yep, Paddy Considine. Pa- that Paddy Considine, yes, thank you. Terrible Matt Smith. I have absolutely no idea who, who that character was. Some weird uh, writing for him. No too. evolution. It's real. It's really hard to go from bashing your wife's head in with a rock to being like our hot incestuous romantic lead. <laughs> it, the whole thing was completely insane, and 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 he did not. I mean, I'm not sure yeah. whether you could have pulled it off, but. Yeah. He didn't in and that a way that both sets of actresses were tremendous. Well, in Game of Thrones, I think yeah. they're 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 stunning as as a- actors, the, the women, and, and and again, not bludgeoning you over the head with any kind of sexual politics. Again, it's just women as women, absolutely not you know fully themselves, 
playing this game, as they always have, of course, in, 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 where, in, wow. in politics, in the Middle Ages especially, because the weird rules of primogeniture and inheritance would suddenly throw up queens and princesses, and, and, and you would have women with real power, and power, sexual power too. Yeah, I, I, I just, the characters involved in the complexities of it would, are just amazing. The other thing I thought was that it was a, it was what life might have been like if 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 Jesus had never been around. Hmm. That 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 it was the medieval world without the notion that suffering can be good, without the notion of mercy. I mean, there was some notion of mercy, but none of the compelling nature that Christianity brought into the medieval world, which however much it was belied in practice, which of course mm. it was, yeah. it was still there as some kind of salvific element. There's no salvation in the Game of Thrones. It is the wheel turning endlessly. Yes, or, you know, the Lord of Light consuming everything or, you know, and it's, yeah, I mean, fan- there's not a lot of fantasy that does religion terribly well. Well, Narnia yeah, and the- Tolkien. Lord of the Rings is 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 so Christian, and it, it's it's and and it's 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 in- fun, fundamental thing, which is the power is something you don't want. I mean, more in the sense of fantasy that sort of incorporates not necessarily the religious values of the author, but experience, but manages to give the character sort of authentic religious experience, right? I mean, that's actually something that's interesting about the young adult fantasy novels by Tamora Pierce that I mentioned earlier is they are set in a world where gods play an extremely active role in the characters' lives and the characters have to sort of accustom themselves to that. You get, you know, to a certain extent, sometimes you get picked by a god and you might not like what they're asking you to do. But that kind of, you know, attempt to invent compelling religious faith and then that work that well into a story. I mean, I actually think it's something that Martin does quite well. Yeah. The, I, the, the, the depiction of the the fanatics of the the seven. Jonathan Price does this extraordinary so well. performance as the High Septon, just pitch perfect. I mean, the English. I mean, in all, it, 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 they could act. I mean, it, it, it's just, and again, it's kind of remarkable that it's almost entirely British cast, right? And it's huge cast. Everyone has an English accent. Well, and the ability to find those actors as children. And then have them work, right? I mean, that's it's one of the great gambles in pop culture history. And the fact that it worked as well as it did is pretty astonishing. Arya is just this astonishing character yes. whose evolution and growth is compelling. You want, you're with her every single step of the way. So terrifying. The only one that's weird is Bran, who turns into something else, you know, who becomes this sort of, well, three eyed raven. He becomes yeah. something non human almost. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a really hard thing to pull off. And I don't know that the actor totally nailed it. That's the one gamble that didn't maybe pay off as well as some of the other ones did. Tell but, me, your, tell me, come on, you've had time now to think. What, what was truly crap? So it's, to a certain extent, it's on my mind because I saw it recently. But I thought she said was an unbelievable dud. This is the movie about Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor's investigation into Harvey Weinstein. And... It is an example. I mean, it's the kind of thing that people 
justly sort of poke fun at in terms of self-regarding journalism movies. And it's one of the worst written movies I have seen in years, just in terms, I mean, the characters just talk to each other in exposition, but in terms of just sort of placing characters in appropriate settings for what they're doing, right? I mean, no investigative journalist for the New York Times makes a critical call for a piece of reporting from the lobby of the Times with no <laughs> recording device available, right? I mean, it just on every It's very Aaron Sorkin-y like that. It's no, just like No, it's not even like it's not even clever, right? I would right. like I would forgive it more if it were clever or witty, but it is primingly self-regarding and for a movie about sort of reporting for a movie about reporting and writing, it's totally inept when it comes to language. For a movie where people are saying, you know, we have to get the system, we have to get the system, you know, there's a name that's never spoken in that movie, and it's Bob Weinstein, right? Or any of the other people who worked for the Weinstein Company who, you know, made Harvey Weinstein's monstrosities possible or made them go away. And so, I mean, it's... I understand sort of why after Spotlight there was sort of an eagerness to do a Me Too movie. But, you know, it would have been so much better to, you know, if someone had adapted Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill, which has actual drama to the reporting, right? I mean, he's being surveilled by Black Cube while he's doing this. He has, you know, a sort of personal stake in this larger reckoning, et cetera. Or Ken Aletta's recent very good book about Weinstein, Hollywood Ending, which is in part a chronicle of his own failure to get the story, you know, 15 years before it broke. And, you know, to a certain extent, a reckoning with what that failure meant for the people that Weinstein went on to assault. Right. And so, you know, it's just to a certain extent, she said is a good example of why journalism movies are dangerous for journalists. Right. It's like. It's the perfect example of what can happen when, you know, the self-regarding romance of journalism takes over the work of journalism as narrative. And you can make that work incredibly compelling. I mean, Spotlight is a, an incredibly well-written movie. It's also a movie with incredible world building, right, that really brings you into Boston, into the institution of the Boston Globe, into, you know, the culture of the people who are trying to respond to abuse within the church. But that's a story about reporting not for sort of its own self-glorifying sake, but for the people it can impact and the institutions it can change. It's a hard, I, I, journalism is a hard thing to film because yeah. most of it is just silent people tapping into 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 laptops or reading reports reading reports or or it's just it's making really... calls that don't get answered and now it's even more boring because in the old days at least when you went into the washington post and all the president's men they were clacking of typewriters and huge <laughs> arguments about this that and the other and now you walk in it's like a morgue or some sort of chapel where everyone's silent and only being really horrible about each other on slack all the time that's I... that's roughly what it is right I have to say that's not my experience. Okay. And I, I want to note, you and I are taping this podcast on the anniversary of Fred Hyatt's death. Fred was my boss at the Washington Post opinion section, one of the most remarkable human beings I have ever known. But I think one thing I feel very fortunate about is, yeah, there are look, there are journalism workplaces where people are horrible to each other and, you know, there are places with bad internal culture. But there have actually been a lot of us in in the opinion section, in part because... 
it's a place where you can still work out tough ideas and work and in, walk into someone's office and say, I'm just stuck on this. I don't know what to say about this. I can't figure out the argument. I can't express the argument the way that I want to. And look, I don't think opinion journalism is particularly worth dramatizing. No, it's at least even less worth dramatizing. But I, I do want to sort of stand up for it as a place where people are still working together to work out some hard questions, at least in in some of the sections. We still exist, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. And just, you know, thank you. Do you in the office? Yeah, I'm in three or four days a week. Yeah, and I love it. I love being back. Well, listen, it's been lovely to talk to you. I'm glad we had a, a, a nice little chat around the culture. And I learned a lot about children's books. I need to need to read some more, maybe. I, I will, I, you know, if if anyone listening to this needs custom children's book recommendations for Christmas, find me on Twitter. Happy to be your personal there's, there's also 99 books for kids that you have in the Washington Post. As today, there's a piece you can you can easily track that down online. But there are so many more. I, we only had to stop at 99 because the editors made me. Well, yes. I'm just glad that kids are still reading. I think it's it's... It's just a matter of time before they stop. I'm nah. afraid. I hope so. I hope so. I really do. Alyssa, thanks so much. We will be back soon next week. Plenty of interesting people coming up. We have Glenn Lowry, for example. Who else, Chris? I'm Carl Truman. We're going to actually engage one of the much more serious critics from the uh, reactionary right soon. We wrote a, a rather striking book arguing that gay marriage really was almost the beginning of the end of human civilization. And we will, we will, we'll tackle that and we'll, we'll take the arguments as seriously and as earnestly as he does. And he's written an interesting book. So that's part of our series of, of talking to people from the far right and trying to understand exactly where that is coming from. Thank you so much. I must say, I thank you for your kind thoughts about my dad and my mom and my uh, sickness. I am on the remand as far as I can tell and uh, looking forward to the end of the year. We have some bumper issues coming up. We'll see you all next week. Thank you.